0: Oh neat connect, what a great mantra this second half of the novel promotes. I'm Roger and this is Bookshook and today I'll be discussing the second half of Howard's End by E.M. Forster, published in 1910. So the idea is that we'll spend a month reading a book, hopefully together, I'll split the book into two equal halves. On the second Friday of the month, I'll share my thoughts and yours on the first half of the book, maybe make a few predictions. And when we finish reading the book, I'll publish part two in a similar vein. That'll be on the last Friday of the month. Will decide whether it's a book we'd recommend to a friend or not. Of course, you don't have to read anything at all. If you're into Audible, then you can listen to the book or you can do neither of course and just join me for the ride. I'll be summarizing what happens in the book just for you but be aware there may be spoilers. You can leave a comment or start a conversation at the Bookshook YouTube channel or send an email to bookshook at yahoo.com. I'd love to share your experiences in the next episode. Welcome to Bookshook. So this is all about the second half of Howard's End from chapter 21. The rest of the Wilcox family believe that Mr. Wilcox is marrying the, quote, artistic Margaret because Evie is going to marry Percy and won't be around to look after him. And Charles says that Margaret's always wanted Howard's end. The narrator highlights the differences between Margaret and Henry's characters, quote, connection and, quote, concentration. And will these differing ideas work for their marriage? More on that later. Mr. Wilcox, after learning that Leonard Bass has secured a less well-paid job says that actually his company was fine and this angers the sisters greatly. It really is here the rich playing with the lives of the poor and there'll be more on that later. Margaret goes to the offices of her husband to be Henry. They arrange to travel to Howard's End. She loves the house and the witch elm which dominates the garden. They're all at Howard's end and Charles brews that his inheritance is going to be split between many people. He's not fond of Margaret. Quote, that woman means mischief. And then Evie and Percy get married. Helen arrives at the wedding with two, quote, starving basts. And she says, quote, I've brought them. I'll stand injustice justice no longer. I'll show up the wretchedness that lies under this luxury. This talk of impersonal forces. This cant about God doing what we're too slack to do ourselves. Margaret agrees to use her, quote, influence to persuade Mr. Wilcox to employ Mr. Bast. Quote, it was the reward of her tact and devotion through the day. Now she understood why some women prefer influence to rights. Mrs. Plinlimon, when condemning suffragettes had said, the woman who can't influence her husband to vote the way she wants ought to be ashamed of herself. Margaret had winced, but she was influencing Henry now. And though pleased at her little victory, she knew that she had won it by the methods of the harem. What old fashioned thinking. Now, when Henry sees Mrs. Bast, she seems to recognise him and calls him, quote, hen. Dun, dun, dun. What history is there between them? Well, Jackie was his mistress 10 years ago. Mrs. Wilcox breaks off the engagement thinking he's been set up And then Leonard feels like his dreams of books and long walks are shattered because of the necessities of money. Helen urges him to retain his romantic spirit though. Quote, if we live forever, what you say would be true, but we have to die. We have to leave life presently. Injustice and greed would be the real things if we lived forever. As it is, we must hold to other things because death is coming. I love death, not morbidly, but because he explains. He shows me the emptiness of money. Death and money are the eternal foes, not death and life. Never mind what lies beneath death, Mr Bast, but be sure that the poet and the musician and the tramp will be happier in it than the man who has never learned to say, quote, I am I. I in this concept is, I think, quote, personal responsibility. And Helen says to Bast, quote, I believe in personal responsibility, don't you? And in personal everything. I hate, I suppose I want to say that, but the Wilcoxes are on the wrong tack, surely. Or perhaps it isn't their fault. Perhaps the little thing that says I is missing out of the middle of their heads, and then it's a waste of time to blame them. There's a nightmare of a theory that says a special race is being born which will rule the rest of us in the future just because it lacks the little things that say I. Quote, her excitement grew as she tried to cut the rope that fastened Leonard to the earth. And I'm thinking, they've got to end up together. Come on, Forster, make it happen. Margaret feels that, quote, Henry must be forgiven and made better by love. She goes on, it was not Helen's tragedy, but Mrs. Wilcox. Helen sees Tibby in Oxford and tells about Jackie and Mr. Wilcox's indiscretion. She thinks Margaret still doesn't know of course, Mr. Wilcox was keen that no one finds out. Helen is going to pay 5,000 in compensation to the Basque without Meg knowing, and Tibby is appalled by this. I'm thinking Tibby's quite aloof and doesn't like to get involved in personal relations. The Bass refuse the money and by a turn in Helen's good fortune. She ends up with more money though through reinvestment. And Helen goes to Bavaria for reinvestments for many months. Mr. Wilcox lets their house out, which upsets Margaret. They live in London over the winter and plan to build a house in Sussex. And when Margaret visits Dolly, she says that Miss Avery gave Evie a brooch that was rejected by her, and this upsets Miss Avery a lot. Dolly tells her that Miss Avery is unpacking all Margaret and Henry's things at Howard's End. Margaret goes to Howard's End to set her straight. She picks up the key from the neighbouring farmhouse, and as she's doing this, she reflects on folklore. Quote, Up the avenue Margaret strolled slowly, stopping to watch the sky that gleamed through the upper branches of the chestnuts, or to finger the little horseshoes on their lower branches. Why is not England a great mythology? Our folklore has never advanced beyond daintiness, and the greater melodies about our countryside have all issued through the pipes of Greece. Deep and true as the native imagination can be, it seems to have failed here. It has stopped with the witches and the fairies. It cannot vivify one fraction of a summer field or give names to half a dozen stars. England still waits for the supreme moment of her literature, for the great poet who shall voice her, or better still, for the thousand little poets whose voices shall pass into our common talk. That reminds me a lot of Tolkien's great ambition for his works. And she reflects on the rural farm life. Quote, Here had lived an elder race to which we look back with disquietude. The country which we visit at weekends was really a home to it, and the graver sides of life, the deaths, the partings, the yearnings for love have their deepest expression in the heart of the fields. All was not sadness, the sun was shining without. The thrush sang his two syllables on the budding guelda rose. Some children were playing uproariously in heaps of golden straw. It was the presence of sadness at all that surprised Margaret and ended by giving her a feeling of completeness. In these English farms, if anywhere, one might see life steadily and see it whole, group in one vision its transitoriness and its eternal youth, connect, connect without bitterness until all men are brothers. Now, will Miss Avery tell Meg of her rightful inheritance? I wonder. When she finally arrives at Howards End, all her things from Wickham Place have been unpacked by Miss Avery. Meg thinks she's got confused, but Miss Avery retorts with, quote, You're living here now, so she knows about the bequest, maybe. When she is corrected by Margaret, she quote, resigned her duties with a smile very intriguing. Margaret is worried that Helen is unwell, being out of the country and concerned over exposing Henry. They arrange for a rendezvous with her at Howard's End. Now, Henry deceives Margaret by attempting to see Helen on his own with the doctor, but is thwarted at the last minute. The young doctor inquires about Helen and this really irks Margaret. Quote, She always was highly strung, pursued Henry, leaning back in the car as it shot past the church. A tendency to spiritualism and those things, though nothing serious. Musical, literary, artistic, but I should say normal. A very charming girl. Margaret's anger and terror increased every moment. How dare these men label her sister? What horrors lay ahead. What impertinences that shelter under the name of science. The pack was turning on Helen to deny her human rights. And it seemed to Margaret that all the Schlegels were threatened with her. Were they normal? What a question to ask. And it is always those who know nothing about human nature who are bored by psychology and shocked by physiology who ask it. However piteous her sister's state, she knew that she must be on her side. They would be mad together if the world chose to consider them so. They discover the reason for her madness. Helen is pregnant. But because this is the 1910s, it is not joyous, but quote, a scandal. And Helen must be quote, protected from the men, the doctor and Henry. Quote, and this is Margaret thinking. A new feeling came over her. She was fighting for women against men. She did not care about rights, but if men came into Howard's end, it should be over her body. So by protecting and trying to hide Helen from the men, she is helping to perpetuate this inequality, possibly. The men leave the women to their, quote, women's things, my words, but it is such an old-fashioned notion. And Helen says, quote, I have no right to trouble people. I cannot fit in with England as I know it. I have done something that the English never pardon." It would not be right for them to pardon it. So I must live where I am not known." Society and societal and social mores have come between them. But they come together when they reminisce on how the furniture was arranged in Wickham Place and memories of Tibby. Quote, the inner life had paid. Helen seeks an authentic experience by asking Margaret to camp out with her at Howard's End. And Henry hypocritically is sanctimonious to Margaret about Helen's pregnancy out of wedlock. He doesn't want Helen to stay and Margaret fires at him with these cutting words. Quote, you shall see the connection if it kills you, Henry. You have had a mistress, I forgave you. My sister has a lover, you drive her from the house. Do you see the connection? Stupid, hypocritical, cruel, oh, contemptible. A man who insults his wife, when she's alive and counts with her memory when she's dead. A man who ruins a woman for his pleasure and casts her off to ruin other men and gives bad financial advice and then says he's not responsible. I've had enough of your unweeded kindness. I've spoiled you long enough. All your life, you've been spoiled. Mrs. Wilcox spoiled you. No one has ever told you what you are. Muddled, criminally muddled. Men like you use repentance as a blind, so don't repent. Only say to yourself, What Helen has done, I've done. Quite right, whoop, go Meg, show him some home truths. That's definitely a punch the air moment. And when he retaliates with, quote, it's different, she says, in what way different? You have betrayed Mrs. Wilcox, Helen only herself. You remain in society, Helen can't. You have had only pleasure, she may die. You have the insolence to talk to me of differences, Henry. Now, Tibby and Charles are at Ducie Street. Charles interrogates him, and Tibby accidentally reveals Bass's name. Charles assumes Leonard is the baby's father. Tibby is so airheaded that he doesn't deny it. They have their night together, and Leonard is the father. Margaret muses, quote, how incomprehensible that Leonard Bass should have won her this night of peace. Was he also part of Mrs. Wilcox's mind? The narrator describes how the dalliance at Onerton came about. Leonard had been, quote, To her as a man apart, isolated from the world, a real man who cared for adventure and beauty, who desired to live decently and pay his way, who could have traveled more gloriously through life than the juggernaut car that was crushing him. Memories of Evie's wedding had warped her. The starched servants, the yards of uneaten food, the rustle of overdressed women, motor cars, oozing grease on the gravel, rubbish from a pretentious band. She had tasted the lees of this on her arrival. In the darkness after failure, they intoxicated her. She and the victim seemed alone in a world of unreality and she loved him absolutely, perhaps for half an hour. Remember that he refused 5,000 in charity from Helen. Leonard is feeling remorse. He tracks Margaret to Howard's end to tell her and appease some guilt. It is the very same day that Helen's pregnancy is discovered. He ends up at Howard's end and is killed. I'm not sure how or by whom yet. A sword was definitely involved. Perhaps it was a heart attack. And yeah, it was heart disease combined with the flat side of a sword. The inquest reports manslaughter and Charles is sentenced to three years in prison. Henry and Meg are reunited. He agrees to leave Howard's End to her and does mention that Mrs. Wilcox originally wanted her to have it. So Meg did end up with Howard's End in the end. The novel seeks to answer the question, quote, who will inherit England? And if Howard's End represents England, it appears it will be a mix of the classes, the materialistic upper class and the idealist upper class and the middle classes. Leonard Bass Boy is an amalgam of the middle classes and the upper classes who will inherit Howard's End ultimately. It could be argued that, unfortunately, it was the World War I that really brought the classes together, as we see officers and infantrymen of different sides of the class divide having to come together, having to work together. Final thoughts, it was an interesting look at class, money and culture just before the outbreak of World War I. Some very powerful writing and some lovely details and psychologizing on what makes the different classes tick. I definitely recommend it to someone interested in sociological history and the idea of class struggle. So there's many interesting ideas to come out of the book. The idea of connections. Margaret wants Mr. Wilcox or or Henry to make connections in the world. Quote, Margaret greeted her Lord with peculiar tenderness on the morrow. Mature as he was, she might yet be able to help him to the building of the rainbow bridge. Quote, she would only point out the salvation that was latent in his own soul and in the soul of every man. Only connect, that was the whole of her sermon, only connect the prose and the passion and both will be exalted and human love will be seen at its highest. Live in fragments no longer, only connect, and the beast and the monk robbed of the isolation that life to either will die. Will she help connect the Wilcox's asceticism with Schlegel's idealism? It seems to be a metaphor for the European crisis about to unfurl. What do you think? Concentrate is almost the opposite of connect. To concentrate, which is what Mr. Wilcox was interested in, is to really limit your bridge building. The focus is only just what you think is necessary. And there's a lovely scene where Helen, quote, connects with milk, i.e. the milk boy, and finds out his real name is Tom. Quote, I am the milk, he says. And Margaret responds to Henry's outrage over Helen's pregnancy with... Quote, in what way different? You have betrayed Mrs. Wilcox, Helen only herself. You remain in society, Helen can't. You have had only pleasure, she may die. You have the insolence to talk to me of differences, Henry. And then Margaret responds to Henry's outrage over Helen's pregnancy with, these men are you. You can't recognise them because you cannot connect. And then we have those interesting thoughts of Meg on Helen's pregnancy. Quote She could not assess her trespass by any moral code. It was everything or nothing. Morality can tell us that murder is worse than stealing and group most sins in an order all must approve, but it cannot group Helen. The surer its pronouncements on this point, the surer may we be that morality is not speaking. Christ was evasive when they questioned him. It is those that cannot connect who hasten to cast the first stone. We have some interesting ideas on charity and patronage as well mr wilcox believes that no one could be personally responsible for the poor quote the poor are poor and one sorry for them but there it is as civilization moves forward the shoe is bound to pinch in places and it's absurd to pretend that anyone is responsible personally neither you nor i nor my informant nor the man who informed him nor the directors of the porphyron are to blame for this clerk's loss of salary. This is Leonard Bast. It's just the shoe pinching. No one can help it and it might easily have been worse, he goes on. By all means, subscribe to charities, subscribe to them largely, but don't get carried away by absurd schemes of social reform. And then we also have that interesting idea of Helen seeking her authentic experiences when she wants to camp out in Howard's End during the end part of the novel Quote, we know this is our house because it feels ours. Oh, they may take the title deeds and the door keys, but for this one night, we are at home. We also have interesting idea of this idea of halfway between kind of yin yang dialectical fights and sort of stoicism. When Helen and Margaret are chatting just after the proposal, we have that quote, She felt that there was something a little unbalanced in the mind that so readily shreds the visible. The businessman who assumes that this life is everything and the mystic who asserts that it is nothing fail on this side and on that to hit the truth. Yes, I see, dear. It's about halfway between. Aunt Julie had hazarded in earlier years. No, truth being alive was not halfway between anything. It was only to be found by continuous excursions into either realm. And... Though proportion is the final secret to espouse, it at the outset is to ensure sterility. So the best course in life isn't the middle way to Margaret, a Stoic path, but to dip into both extremes to get the full experiences. And then when Margaret first enters Howard End, she thinks of, quote, The map of Africa, of empires, of her father, of the two supreme nations, streams of whose life warmed her blood, but mingling had cooled her brain. She paced back into the hall, and as she did so, the house reverberated. It's forced to say here that the Stoic may have a cool brain, but to feel romance and have warm blood, you must experience, quote, the two supreme nations. What do you think? Is it the inner life or maybe the outer life? We also have this interesting idea of cliche avoiding. Have a listen to this. This is at Evie's wedding. And Forster says, quote, everything went like one o'clock. And there's a few times where there's a cliche that is so obvious. Like, everything went like clockwork and he has to change it to everything went like one o'clock. Maybe one o'clock is a particularly fine time because it's when you have lunch and you enjoy friendship. Do you remember when Margaret said, over my body, not over my dead body? Listen to this quote. She was fighting for women against men. She did not care about rights. But if men came into Howard's End, it should be over her body. We also have this idea of coincidences, that Jackie and Mr. Wilcox were lovers. What are the chances? And Mr. Bast was introduced at a concert quite randomly. And then we have the Wilcoxes moving into Wickham Mansions opposite Wickham Place. Is this force of saying, look, literature is artifice, now get over it. Possibly. What do you think about these coincidences? Do you have any thoughts? There's some interesting ideas about feminism. Margaret acts against the wishes of her, quote, man when she leaves the car during the cat running over incident on the way to the wedding. We also have some problematic sexism. Close narrator of Mr. Wilcox states, man is for war, woman for the recreation of the warrior, but he does not dislike it if she makes a show of fight. She cannot win in a real battle, having no muscles, only nerves. Nerves make her jump out of a moving motor car. And then we've got the idea of having a baby out of wedlock. Quote, I have no right to trouble people. I cannot fit in with England as I know it. I've done something that the English never pardon. It would not be right for them to pardon it, so I must live where I'm not known. Unbelievable. There's a beautiful description of spring as an idea. What a wonderful bucolic description when Margaret is at Miss Avery's farmhouse. Listen to this. Quote, it was quicker to go out by the back door and after due explanations they went out by it. The niece was now mortified by innumerable chickens who rushed up to her feet for food and by a shameless maternal sow. She did not know what animals were coming to but her gentility withered at the touch of the sweet air. The wind was rising, scattering the straw and ruffling the tails of the ducks as they floated in families over Evie's pendant. One of those delicious gales of spring, in which leaves still in buds seemed to rustle, swept over the land, and then fell silent. Georgie, sang the thrush. Cuckoo came furtively from the cliff of pine trees. Georgie, pretty Georgie, and the other birds joined in with nonsense. The hedge was a half-painted picture, which would be finished in a few days. Celandines grew on its banks, lords and ladies and primroses in the defended hollows. The wild rose bushes still bearing their withered hips showed also the promise of blossom. Spring had come, clad in no classical garb, yet fairer than all springs, fairer even than she who walks through the myrtles of Tuscany with the graces before her and the sapphire behind. What a wonderful description, possibly rose-tinted. We've got an interesting idea of typecasting. We've got Margaret's view of Monica Do you remember this? Quote, Margaret guessed at Monica's type, Italiano Inglesiato. They had named it the crude feminist of the South, whom one respects, but avoids. And Helen had turned to it in her need. And then we have houses being like human beings, such animism here and quote, houses have their own ways of dying, falling as variously as the generations of men, some with a tragic roar, some quietly, but to an afterlife in the city of ghosts, while from others, and thus was the death of Wickham Place, the spirit slips before the body perishes. It had decayed in the spring, disintegrating the girls more than they knew and causing either to accost unfamiliar regions. By September, it was a corpse, void of emotion and scarcely hallowed by the memories of 30 years of happiness. Through its round-top doorway past furniture and pictures and books, until the last room was gutted and the last van had rumbled away. It stood for a week or two longer, open-eyed, as if astonished at its own emptiness. Then it fell. Navies came and spilt it back into the grey. With their muscles and their beery good temper, they were not the worst of undertakers for a house, which had always been human and had not mistaken culture for an end. I'd like to talk a little bit now about July's book, Gravity's Rainbow by Thomas Pynchon, published in 1973. If you're reading alongside, I'll be reading up to page 455. I've read The Crying of Lot 49, also by Thomas Pynchon, and I quite enjoyed his academic and unusual style. So I'm looking forward to giving this one a try. Here is the first few pages A screaming comes across the sky. It has happened before, but there is nothing to compare it to now. It is too late. The evacuation still proceeds, but it's all theatre. There are no lights inside the cars, no light anywhere. Above him, lift girl as old as an iron queen, and glass somewhere far above that would let the light of day through. But it's night. He is afraid of the way the glass will fall, soon. It will be a spectacle, the fall of a crystal palace but coming down in total blackout without one glint of light, only great invisible crashing. Inside the carriage, which is built on several levels, he sits in velveteen darkness with nothing to smoke, feeling metal nearer and farther rub and connect, steam escaping in puffs, a vibration in the carriage's frame, a poising, an uneasiness, all the others pressed in around, feeble ones, second sheep, all out of luck and time, drunks. Old veterans still in shock from an ordnance 20 years obsolete. Hustlers in city clothes, derelicts, exhausted women and more children than it seems could belong to anyone. Stacked about among the rest of the things to be carried out to salvation. Only the nearer faces are visible at all. and of that, only as half silvered images. In a viewfinder, green-stained VIP faces remembered behind bulletproof windows speeding through the city. They've begun to move. They pass in line, out of the main station, out of downtown, and begin pushing into older and more desolate parts of the city. Is this the way out? Faces turn to the windows, but no one dares ask, not out loud. Rain comes down. No, this is not a disentanglement from, but a progressive knotting into. They go in under archways, secret entrances of rotted concrete that only looked like loops of an underpass. Certain trestles of blackened wood have moved slowly by overhead, and the smells begun of coal from days far to the past. Smells of naphtha winters, of Sundays when no traffic came through, of the coral-like and mysteriously vital growth, around the blind curves and out the lonely spurs, a sour smell of rolling stock absence, of maturing rust, developing through those emptying days, brilliant and deep, especially at dawn, with blue shadows to seal its passage, to try to bring events to absolute zero, and it is poorer the deeper they go, ruinous secret cities of poor places whose names he has never heard, The walls break down, the roofs get fewer, and so do the chances for light. The road, which ought to be opening out into a broader highway, instead has been getting narrower, more broken, cornering tighter and tighter, until all at once, much too soon, they are under the final arch. Brakes grab and spring terribly. It is a judgment from which there is no appeal. Wow, what an interesting opening. So, evacuation. Screaming coming across the sky. I'm guessing this must be something to do with a rocket. And I know it's based on the experiences of World War II. I'm interested to find out who the narrator is there. Really good stuff. Looking forward to this one, Gravity's Rainbow. It's quite a hefty book. So uh, we've got five weeks to read it, no problem at all. Anyway, thanks very much for listening. If you have any questions or comments, I'd love to hear them. The email is bookshook at yahoo.com or you can leave a comment on the Bookshook YouTube channel. And if you want to recommend a future book to read together, do let me know. I look forward to discussing the first part of Gravity's Rainbow by Thomas Pynchon at the next episode of Bookshook on the second Friday of July. That is the 8th, so see you then.